Hello and welcome to another episode of Cyberspeak with InfoSec Institute. Today's guest is Gregory Garrett, Head of U.S. and International Security for BDO. We're going to be talking about a topic that's currently a big part of InfoSec Institute's initiative for the coming years, uh, namely finding new and innovative ways of closing the cybersecurity skills gap. To do this requires us to first understand the underlying sources of the problem, and Greg is here to help us uh, come to an understanding about the various facets of the issue. Uh, Gregory Garrett is the head of U.S. and international cybersecurity for BDO, where he supports more than 2,000 IT and cyber professionals globally. A recognized IT and cybersecurity expert with 30-plus years of experience, Greg has managed more than $40 billion uh, in complex high-tech programs and related consulting services for government agencies and Fortune 500 companies around the world. Greg, thank you for joining us today. Well, Chris, it's my pleasure. I'm always delighted to talk about cybersecurity. That's fantastic, and we're glad to have you. So um, let's start out with the, uh, the, the sort of 10,000-foot uh, view. What, in your opinion, is the biggest cause right now of the cybersecurity skills gap? Well, I think, Chris, first you have to look at the people that work in cybersecurity because it's not just one you know, flavor or one set of skills. And if I were to broadly put those into three major buckets, I would say first you have those folks that are focused on the policies, plans, and procedures, and especially, as you know, on the government side that are focused on the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, sure. 800 series, and the risk management framework. I would submit to you and to the audience that uh, the government actually has plenty of cybersecurity compliance-based policies, process, and procedures folks. So I would say their shortages are in the other two categories and I would say those are really in the hardware and software, the technology analysis, the programmers, the coders, the pen testers. Mm. There they have a significant shortage. And then the third group would be, and these are the really the high-end the threat intelligence analysts, the data scientists, the people that can take that data and extrapolate it either on a road, uh, um, on a uh, uh, retrospective basis or, or on a proactive basis to identify potential trends and vulnerabilities. So when I talk about cybersecurity skills, I try to sort of bucket it in those various different groups or categories. Okay, that's, inter that's interesting. So there's, there's sort of a, a stratification of certain type of positions where is it just because it's, it's much higher specialization level or higher skill that certain certain buckets are less served and, and others are more served? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. I'd, okay. I'd say one, um, the government has a tendency towards um, requirements and documentations and policies and plans and procedures. And since they, let's say to a large measure, specialize in that, they have a lot of people with those skill sets uh, within their organizations today. Hmm. I think they have a hard time attracting, you know, for a variety of reasons, pay and flexible work hours and, and, and a variety of reasons, the high-end hardware and software engineers, computer scientists, and uh, the third category of data analysts and what I'd call high-end threat analysts. Okay. Uh, if you're familiar with, like, uh, the security operations centers, the SOCs, that all the federal government agencies have, mm -hmm. it's easy for them to get the tier one, uh, which are the analysts that are looking at the scopes and gathering information, 
And it's fairly easy for them to get the, the tier two people that have some experience as to handling incidents and intrusions and then uh, coming up with a game plan to uh, deal with them to eradicate a malicious uh, software or virus. But where they struggle are those higher end tier three analysts that people that can really do the threat analysis, that can really do the proactive uh, threat assessments. And, and that's where there's a significant shortage. Okay. So do you think it's because they're not uh, sort of offering, you know, people of these specializations and, and skill levels, you know, an appropriate offer? Are they, you know, is it, is it that they're kind of lowballing it or are there just not that many people out there that can do the job? Well, again, it, it's a combination, Chris. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I'll give you a, for example, um, several years ago, I was leading a large government cybersecurity uh, contractor that provided literally hundreds of people to federal civilian agencies to staff those kinds of security operations centers. And um, what we found is that the government agencies were willing to pay um, maybe half to a third of what those same people could get in the private sector. Wow. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a classic example. Uh, one of the high-end um, skill sets today is a certified Splunk architect. Okay. Because as more and more companies are using uh, Splunk as a data visualization tool to be able to gather data and vast amounts of data and analyze it and customize it into customized dashboards there's a very small number of people that have the high-end uh, Splunk certified architect, which is above their Splunk certified engineer, mm -hmm. and even fewer that have security clearances. And mm -hmm. so in the private sector, those people could bill out at say $350, $400 an hour. Mm -hmm. Government's only willing to pay those same people with that same skill set, maybe $150 an hour. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's, uh, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, do you think there's any way around that? I mean, you know, there's always funding issues within the government and stuff like that. Is it just a matter of prioritizing the need and, you know, moving the money around or changing, you know, minds about leadership in, in the government and so forth? Well, I think, you know, for those high-end skill sets, there has to be a recognition that the government has to be flexible and being yeah. willing to pay what the market demands when there's uh, a shortage of those kinds of people. And unfortunately, I haven't seen a lot of flexibility in the government agencies around those. Mm -hmm. and, and also too, I think part of the problem, Chris, is that the government is not real flexible often on their requirements. Mm. And so sometimes their very specific requirements for so many years of experience, such a level of education, so many certifications and uh, security clearance, combining all of those, those becomes very restrictive. It makes it very difficult for uh, both uh, the Office of Personnel Management as well as the government contractors to be able to fill those positions. So what are your thoughts on, uh, this is sort of a, a maybe not just about the government, but uh, you know, the industry in general, there's, there's a theory that uh, there's less of a skills gap than it's more of a training gap that under this theory, uh, employees currently at the company might want to do the job, but you know, HR has been conditioned to accept only the perfect kind of unicorn candidate for, you know, these positions with only the right set of skills. Um, you know, they're not training people or bringing them up internally. Is that, is that also a, a component of this, do you think? 
Yeah, I think that's a very real component of this. I think there's a, a lack of understanding of, of people's ability to adapt and to uh, learn and to gather new skills. And, and I saw this, I've seen this both in the public sector and the private sector. Um, I mean, there's certain core capabilities that you look for based upon the roles, as I mentioned earlier, that people play. But, um, you know, I like somebody with a computer science, you know, background or an engineering background because they tend to have more, you know, technical problem solving skills than somebody who's, for example, an accountant, okay, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, somebody with a finance background. But it doesn't mean that those people, uh, if they've got good computer skills, uh, can't be trained and adapted to one of those three categories of positions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, moving on, uh, uh, because of the speed at which up-to-the-minute knowledge changes in the security game, um, there's, it's been said that up-to-date knowledge has a half-life of about two years, which means about every two years, half of the knowledge goes away either because you start to, you know, don't use it, you lose it, but also that it becomes uh, obsolete. So, is this issue bigger than just getting people onto the skills treadmill? So they're staying fresh. Is the technology moving so fast that people can't keep up as well? It, it is really a challenge. And, and again, um, I go back to those three skill groups because mm -hmm. the, uh, the rules, the regulations, the laws, they don't morph nearly as quickly as the actual technology does. Right. right? And so those that are focused on the, um, the hardware, the software, the penetration testing, the vulnerability assessments, um, trying to keep up with the latest malware, that is just a, an ongoing dynamic environment that is constantly changing. The half-life might be actually more like six months mm -hmm. when it comes into some of the latest malware and trends associated with that. Hmm. But um, I would say, you know, when it comes to the policies and procedures, it might be more like a five-year period, okay? Mm -hmm. And the threat analysis and data analytics, that's probably, you know, closer to a two-year half-life. So within your own organization, uh, yours in this case being, you know, the listeners, within, within organizations, um, what are some of the metrics you would use to assess both the real skills gap in your organization, but also the actual skill level of your staff or the actual skill level of applicants for your InfoSec positions? Like what questions would, should you be asking candidates or existing employees to prove their knowledge or their interest? So again, you know, I go back to what's the nature of the position that they're filling. If I'm looking for someone to be, for example, a, uh, a cybersecurity um, analyst that's conducting largely HIPAA-based uh, cyber risk assessments, then I'm going to ask them questions around their knowledge of the HIPAA requirements, um, maybe, you know, a knowledge of uh, uh, NIST requirements or ISO requirements, how many assessments they've conduct, conducted, you know, what tools and methodologies they've utilized, you know, and uh, we'll focus on that specific skill set. Conversely, if I'm looking for a pen tester, I'm going to, you know, see how many, you know, penetration testing they've done, you know, what software tools they're familiar with, you know, so it's a, each one's a different set of questions. Mm -hmm. And the threat analyst, you know, there I'm going to be talking about, you know, how they analyze and interpret data, what database tools that they've utilized. So each of them are a different set. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess especially at the uh, 
you know, both in the government level, but in also in the private sector, uh, you know, we mentioned how fast technology changes and how fast trends change and so forth. So, uh, you know, conceivably like massive changes to your company's cyber program can happen all the time. Like sometimes, you know, company will just migrate everything to the cloud and that can result in, you know, complete up upheaval of your security department. You'll either, you know, have to retrain or replace most of your InfoSec team. Uh, are there any steps you can take in advance that would sort of prevent job loss or downtime to find new candidates? Is this, uh, you know, a, a process that can be, you know, a learned skill, you know, from executives who say change everything tomorrow? Yeah. Well, you know, um, very seldom do I see an executive or talk to a senior executive that says change everything tomorrow. Yeah, 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 sure. You know, I, mean, uh, and I just heard about this new thing at a conference and I want us to do it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you have those uh, technology early adopter folks, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but, uh, but often uh, that's not the case. What's usually the case is people say to me, hey, Greg, you know, uh, we have a limited amount of money to spend and we want to use our money as wisely as possible to improve our level of security, where should we start? Okay. And, and candidly, you know, I, I sort of treat it more like a, a physician would a patient. Hmm. And I say, let's start with a, a rather robust series of diagnostics and let's look at the actual defense and level of security of your organization comparison to the threat. Whereas a lot of people will whip out a copy of uh, NIST 800-171 if they're working with a government contractor or if they're working with a financial institution, the NYDFS cybersecurity requirements and follow a checklist approach. I don't really think that's appropriate. I think you should start with the diagnostic, like doing an email uh, network attack and threat assessment, um, conducting penetration testing to externally look at the environment, conducting scanning on the computers to see if there's an advanced persistent threat that hasn't been detected. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, looking at the hardware, the software, the email, the networks, the endpoints, and determining, you know, how vulnerable is this organization to outside attacks. Right. So I like to start there, okay? Oh, and, and then I'll look at, their policies, their plans, and their procedures, so I can get sort of a holistic assessment of the organization and its level of defense. And I do all that typically before I start doing any recommendations for remediation actions and improvement. I see. Um, so we had a recent guest who noted that, um, you know, we were talking about uh, career tracks to uh, CISO positions and uh, he noted that outsourcing security is becoming more and more common these days and that uh, CISOs need to understand how to integrate this very real and very common business decision into their model, you know, risk becoming extinct. So um, how will this impact the short and long-term skill set issues we've been discussing? If you, you know, we don't have anyone that, uh, you know, can do this particular position and no one's trained for it, are people going to be, you know, using sort of security in a box as, you know, stop gaps or, you know, is there a, a worry that like cost cutting tendencies towards outsourcing is going to make the whole argument of, you know, you know, training your employees in house, you know, redundant in a few years. So that's a good set of questions. It really is. And um, I'd say most of my clients are mid-sized companies okay. uh, today. 
And so they're all struggling because the, the large, you know, fortune, you know, 100, fortune 500 companies can afford to have a really robust, you know, uh, cybersecurity in-house department with a lot of resources, a lot of training, uh, high quality experience, uh, chief information security officers. The mid-sized companies struggle. You know, they, they struggle to find the talent. They yep. struggle to hold on to the talent, to make the investments in the hardware and the software. So, candidly, the managed security solutions uh, or managed security services environment is really an attractive environment for them. And, and I will tell you that we're selling a lot of managed security services from email threat monitoring services to uh, network and endpoint uh, detection monitoring services to what we call uh, virtual CISO services, where a client can say, hey, look, you know, I can't afford a full-time CISO, but I could really use somebody maybe eight hours a month to help mm -hmm. develop some high-level plans, strategy, or if you could give me a CISO in a box yeah. where I could call up, you know, and say, okay, this time I need a CISO that has a real great understanding of, um, for example, HIPAA compliance and can help us develop a strategy for that. And the next time it might be, hey, can you hook me up with an expert on incident response planning and help me put together a really robust uh, business continuity plan, disaster recovery plan, and incident response plan? So, I'm, I'm sorry, do you, do you think that this is, um, that this can be sort of a, you know, permanent solution going forward in the sense that, you know, you can use these, these people uh, while you're sort of retraining your current staff and, you know, helping more internally or, or um, what, do, what do you think? Yeah, I think it depends on the needs of the client. I mean, okay. sometimes uh, uh, somebody needs a, a CISO for three to six months while they're uh, looking, they're recruiting, searching for the, the right full-time person. Sometimes, you know, the company just can't afford paying out that kind of a salary on a full-time basis. So it just makes good business sense for them to have, access to someone with those skills, but only on a part-time basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's best to provide the, the support that the clients need, you know, based upon their budget and their situation. Right. Absolutely. Um, one of the reasons that we uh, brought you on the show is you have, you know, because of, of your, uh, you know, government uh, background and knowledge, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the uh, recent government shutdown and uh, what effect it has had on the issue of the skills gap. You know, even with, we've, by the time this, you know, episode airs in a month or whatever, you know, temporary funding measures will have uh, run out. So we'll see if we've uh, shut down again. But um, in general, what do you think the ripple effect will be um, that they will have on the cybersecurity training within the government and uh, job placement, especially in key security positions in the military? So, so I appreciate the question. I really do, because having spent 24 years in the United States Air Force as a military officer and worked in all different areas of uh, communications, from satellite communications to telecommunications to IT and cybersecurity, I have a real appreciation for this and what some of the challenges that folks are going through. Um, so one, I, I would say this particular shutdown, somewhat unique the standpoint that it was a partial shutdown, 75% was funded, and most organizations, and you know that 
the government is not a single entity. Right. DOD is quite different culture than the intelligence community, and both of those are quite different than the civilian agencies. Sure. They each have different priorities on funding, but said simply, most of the federal government organizations consider cybersecurity skills and those surrounding their security operation centers to be essential. And so for the most part, those people were funded, uh, working their appropriate shifts and fully operational uh, during the shutdown. So from a operational standpoint, I would say it had very limited impact. Okay. Now, if there's a second round or we sort of debt ceiling and people aren't funded, you know, that could be more significant. Mm -hmm. But to your point, I think where it really has an impact is uh, when these kinds of government shutdowns occur, what tends to be pushed off and sometimes completely eliminated is training. Yes. And training is essential, especially simulations, you know, for mm-hmm. uh, incident response and things like this and uh, keeping up with the latest, you know, malware and the latest software and the latest data analytics capabilities. So those kinds of uh, delays in training can have an impact. But to, to your last point, where I think it has the biggest impact is on uh, recruiting and retention. Because if people don't see this as a stable environment where there's the potential that they may not get paid, may not get the training, then it becomes even less desirable than candidly it is already. Yeah, even more so, you know, as you said, you're already, um, you know, potentially taking a pay cut, you know, for these kind of positions anyway. And then if, you know, you're also risking job security, it, it, it suddenly it goes very far down your list in terms of uh, desirable positions you might want to take with your skills. Yeah, absolutely. And candidly, again, a lot of the folks that go into the government, I mean, besides, you know, uh, service to the country, which is a wonderful thing, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of them go into it because of the level of security and in the, uh, that they have in the position security, the opportunities for advancement, and historically, really high-quality education training programs. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you think that the um, skills gap, gap specifically at the government military level, it sounds like, like you said, a fair amount of it was funded, but uh, do you think that you know, a permanent solution is something that could be solved with specific legislative action, or does it go deeper than that? Well, yeah, you know, things are certainly possible to improve through legislative actions like increased funding and, you know, basically saying these are protected, you know, critical mission essential positions, things of like that can be done. But, but I think there are some deeper issues just uh, concerning how the government looks at uh, these kinds of positions and they've become more of a commodity um, over the last 10 years. Um, and so not, not viewed as valuable as perhaps they once were. Yeah. Um, I, I guess to wrap things up here, uh, if you had a sort of a magic wand to solve the skills gap, especially in the government and military areas once and for all, what specific actions legislative or otherwise would you take? Is there a combination of fast track measures that would solve this tomorrow, whether it's changing, you know, executive minds about what this is about or you know what would your what would your ideal solution be i suppose well you know there's always the the short term sort of the midterm and the long term solution mm-hmm. uh, i'd say from the long term solution my wish for the government would be that they not be so short sighted mm-hmm. and that they they view uh, this this point in time 
in cybersecurity as what it is a, a point in time and start sort of looking at the next generation. <clears throat> and I do see the next generation more blockchain oriented. Okay. Where we move to a more secure platform because inherently, as you know, the internet uh, was created as a communications device to send data at high speeds, but not in a protected environment. Yeah. And so as we've migrated uh, the internet to uh, more transaction and made it a virtual shopping mall, you know, with uh, a virtual pay capability, yep. um, we, we've created an environment where now we've got um, information and security concerns that it was never intended to have. Yeah. And so we've bolted on encryption, multi-factor authentication, and all these other measures to try to implement a level of security on an inherently insecure platform. Hmm. And so I, I think, you know, if you're looking forward, you know, you, you have to recognize that this as a platform will be here for at least another 10 to 20 years. And I'm talking about the internet and our commercialization of it. Hmm. But I do see that with the growing use of blockchain technology in both the public and private sectors, that we'll see more secure-based transactions, whether it's contracts, electronic funds transfers, accounting measures, um, taking place using blockchain technology. And so I would like for them to really invest more in the future. Because Chris, you know, I was looking at the budget reports just yesterday that came out of um, uh, the GAO in preparation for our discussion. And, you know, they spent $80 billion, the U.S. federal government, on IT last year. Over 70% of that was for IT modernization of really old hardware and software. Yep. And so I would say, look, instead of spending all that money patching the old equipment, yep. scrap a bunch of it, shut down a bunch of those old systems and networks, and, and start really making significant investments in much more secure platform going forward using, as appropriate, blockchain technology. Uh, well, Greg, thank you for joining us today. This has been extremely educational, and I, I hope uh, everything you're predicting uh, comes true. Well, thank you very much for your time. Always appreciate it. Okay, and thank you all uh, for listening and watching today. If you enjoyed today's video, you can find many more of them on our YouTube page. Just go to youtube.com and type in InfoSec Institute to check out our collection of tutorials, interviews, and past webinars. If you'd rather have us in your ears during your workday, all of our videos are also available as audio podcasts. Please visit infosecinstitute.com slash cyberspeak for the full list of episodes. If you'd like to qualify for a brief free pair of headphones or other promotions with a class sign-up, podcast listeners can go to infosecinstitute.com slash podcast to learn more. And if you'd like to try our free security IQ package, which includes phishing simulators you can use to fake fish and then educate your colleagues and friends in the ways of security awareness, please visit infosecinstitute.com slash security IQ. Thanks once again to Gregory Garrett, and thank you all again for watching and listening today. We'll speak to you next week.